What up, this is Dart Adams, and this is episode 59 of Dart Against Humanity. One of the things I set out to do with my writing is to establish context. I'm sure you know that, but why is it important? Well, because I'm usually writing about something I'm passionate about, something I care deeply about. Something that moved me enough where I felt the need to write about it. Not necessarily someone gave me an assignment and now I have to do 500, 1,000, 1,500 words on it. But I was motivated enough to write about this subject because I feel I'm the right person or the only person in many cases that could do this particular subject justice or usually what it is is that I'm the only person who gave a fuck enough about said subject to want to write about it. One thing I understand going in is that I have to get you where I am or somewhere close. Typically, people read about things that interest them. What do you need to do to write about something someone doesn't give a goddamn about and make them, at the end of it, feel like it was worth it for me to set aside that 10, 15 minutes. This is how long I write, I guess. Or people are slow readers or they read things twice. That I gave up my time and I'm the better for it. You can't get time back. I'm super critical about art, film, everything, because I invested my time in something and I hope there's something that I'll gain from it. I'm hoping it will be productive. I watch a documentary. I come out smarter for having watched the documentary. Even if the documentary sucks, I know what I don't want to see in a documentary. I know what I don't want to do, and I know what to completely avoid. And I also often think about what someone else can do or what I can do to not make the same mistakes the documentary maker made when I write something. So I'm going to find a way to have a positive outcome out of it. Even if I've really wasted my time. But you have to understand how things work from my perspective. I want to provide context because I know that the reader, for the most part, does not have my memory and doesn't feel the same as I do, the person who actually committed to writing about this subject when I write about music I automatically have these sense memories that kick in a particular song transforms me to a time in my life and when it does that I have full context of the era the song I'm listening to I know what else was on the radio at the same time I know what was the new sound pushing through. I know what was on its way out. I know what was on television. 
I know what I was wearing. I know what my family members were wearing. I know what the cars were on the street. I know what was going on in the country. I know what was the top story on the news. I know what were the Saturday morning cartoons. I know what comic books I was reading. I know what grade I was in. I know I was pissed off at the fact that I still have to do phonics when I'm far beyond it. I'm sick of writing PH in books. I get the fuh, the fuh sound. The fuck out of here. That's, that's fuh. But the thing is, that's not everybody. People forget that if you play them a song, they don't have any attachment to it. There's no memory. There's no place for them to go. It's just an individual song they hear. And for the most part with a lot of people, when you put them onto something, they have no attachment to it. You have the attachment to it. You love it. I'm being forced. I have no interest. An example that I like to use years ago, not so much anymore, because again, for the sake of um, context, people haven't been exposed to it. So there was a show that used to come on all the time, but doesn't anymore. The Bill Cosby show or the Cosby show, as we know it. There was a recurring theme on the Cosby show. Cliff Huxtable would talk about a Western hero named Colt Kirby. And he would bring up things about Colt Kirby that were supposedly groundbreaking or things that they did in the Colt Kirby movies no one else did. There's a particular episode where Colt Kirby says, put down that box. He pauses the film, turns to the kids or whoever was there and was like, see, that Colt Kirby, this was the first Western where someone ever uttered the line, put down that box. That's funny because the context is they don't give a fuck. They have no interest. They're just being subject to something they don't care about. And you're telling them something that you are fanatic of. They don't care. That's always a dynamic I've kept in mind. Avoid that. There's a way to talk about something that you're fanatic of, that you love, that draws in the other people. You have to provide more context. You have to lay out the groundwork. You have to, you have to paint the picture. You have to transport the people there. So as it's happening and you lay out the story, they feel involved. They don't feel alienated. They don't feel put upon. In some ways, you could think of it as, oh, so I'm placating the person. So I'm doing all this work. I'm pretty much kissing their ass or something. There's more to be said about understanding. There's more to be said about trying to relay information. There's more to be said about telling a story. When you tell a story, whether it be through the written word, whether it be visually, 
got to remember that even visually, somebody had to write it. It's all an important aspect of storytelling. How you tell the story, how you frame it, how you treat the audience, how you bring the audience along. Because the purpose is to get the message across, is to evoke a feeling, is to make the person feel a certain way, to have them invest emotionally in something they didn't care for just 15 minutes ago. That's magic. That's a gift. And writing is so much work. It's painful. It's a chore. Great writing is even more work. There are some people that write really effortlessly, but think about how much work and how many man hours that requires and how much repetition and how much reading, all the reading. I've never in my life met an excellent writer who didn't read voraciously, who didn't read and listen far more than they wrote. Never. In order to become a master of relaying information and getting somebody to a point where they are emotionally invested in something that may or may not even exist or a thing that they didn't care about before or even to be riveted when they cared a little bit or to keep engaging somebody who wanted to be engaged on a higher level. It is so hard to do. And the people that do this at a high level do it because they practice this day in, day out. They exchange ideas with others. They listen to others. Listening to writers talk about writing. It's amazing. For writers, it might be intriguing for other people. One thing I know with all my, anybody I know that writes is how much of a chore it is, how hard it is, but how you got to, you got to do it because you know it's coming and you know you have to do it. But even when you're good at it, it's still hard. Even when you're great at it, it's still hard. And you know that you're great at it and how hard it is. And how labor intensive it is. And you know somebody's going to have to cut the check. You can't be expecting me to do this shit for free. The reason why everyone in the world isn't a writer is because everyone can't fucking write. And though even if you say, hey, more people can't write, they can't do it well. Okay. 
I've read a lot of scripts. I've read a lot of screenplays. I've read even more manuscripts. Not everybody can write. Not, and very few can write very well. And you have to prove you can write well. There are some people that improve over time. And some people who don't. There are some people that go from being really good to being great. And there are some that maintain a level of greatness and are awe-inspiring. I was having a discussion with um, Howard Bryant earlier tonight. And he was talking about how few authors are great at doing fiction and nonfiction simultaneously. It was a short list. We were like, um, uh, uh, I'm thinking in my head, who, who can I offer up? Um, uh, where are you going with this? Um, it's a really short list. Writing is really fucking hard. I love doing it. I'm kind of good at it. I wish I were better. That's a great thing because the authors and writers that I read that were really, really good, I learned early on, I can't do that shit. I can't do what you're doing. Mm-mm, can't do that. I ain't going to try. I don't know if I ever mentioned this before. I used to read uh, these books by these authors at home. They weren't necessarily assigned to me. In school, and at the time I was going to Boston Latin School, and they were assigning me books by some of the most boring fucking authors. I had a discussion with my sister last week, and we were talking about Boston Latin School and the work we were assigned. The book that killed me, don't know if I ever mentioned it on the podcast, was a book called Silas Marner. It bored me to tears it was just a chore to read it was not enjoyable there were pages upon pages describing mundane things that did not make me care any more about the character or the setting or what was happening at that particular time it was almost like they were torturing me it was an endurance test I was being waterboarded with words Just to see how much I could endure. And I, for the life of me, didn't understand why this fucking book was assigned to me. I love reading. I love words. Why are you giving me this book that makes me hate them? I like writing. I might even, well, I grew up to love it. This isn't doing that. Why am I being forced to have this book in front of me? To be tested on this book in particular. And why is this even regarded as something that people should read? The fuck am I learning from this? It just made me angry. And I checked out. And my sister explained that it was their way 
of figuring out who could do certain work that was mundane and boring and plotting because they were preparing you for your next stage of education and wherever school or program you went to where you would have to read books like this. My response was, who wants to read these fucking books? You're not getting anything from them. And this is where we diverged. Because it turns out that my sister was right. That was the purpose. Silas Marner was on the, was on the list of books that certain people at certain, in certain grades of Boston Latin School had to read. Because if you were going to take a certain path and you were going to take certain classes in certain uni- colleges and universities, institutions of higher learning, Silas Marner was preparing you for the type of reading you were going to have to do later. I had no interest in that at all. I didn't last at Boston Latin School. I was expurgated. That's a nice word to use instead of saying I was expelled or expunged. A special word. You don't get expunged from Boston High School. You get expurgated. Imagine being sent to hell, only you get sent out of hell. When I was expur- officially told that I was being expurgated from Boston Latin School, the man told me as if I had just fucked up my entire life and committed a huge sin. When he told me, I shook his hand and I fucking danced. It was, can you feel a brand new day from the whiz? He did not expect that from me. He should have. I didn't like that place. Five years. Didn't like it. But I'll tell you what I did love. All those books that I stole from Boston Latin that I still read today. Why? Because I love learning. I love knowledge. I love the written word. That's why I write today. But back to the subject at hand. I always wanted to figure out how to get there. How to get there. How to make the reader feel what I want them to. I want to convey a message and then wonder the reader did you get it did you, did you understand it did you did you catch all the extra layers or was there something else that you found in it that spoke to you that i didn't even realize that you would kept, you would take away from it because you're using your personal experiences holy shit i'm great i'm better than i thought i was but here's the thing you're not better than you thought you were cuz you got to do it again <laughs> you could write Something great, something fantastic, something amazing, something you're getting praised for on Monday the 13th. You're writing again on the 20th and you don't know what the fuck this is. You send that to somebody to edit and it's like, um, fam, I don't know what the fuck this is supposed to be. Um, yeah, um, this trash be. 
Uh, maybe you need to like burn this. I know people don't write on paper anymore, but I would like for you to print this out, then burn it, then delete it and start all over again. I don't, don't use any of the words. Don't even use this, the commas, the semicolons, nothing. Start over. Fresh idea. Leave this shit alone. That's the thing about writing. You do it once. Yay. Do it again. And do it again. And you're always in danger of being trash. That's what I love about it. There's always that danger. There's always that. Uh, could you read this? Uh, does this make sense? You know goddamn well what makes sense, right? You might not, because sometimes you get lost in your own thought process and and you're getting your own zone where you don't you have to consider is someone else going to get this? Writing things that a lot of people can understand and get may seem easy, it's really hard. It takes a lot of practice. And even people that are good at it Again, they can go off the rails. Love that. I keep this in mind every time I write something. This can go left at any point in time. So I need to be reined in. If I don't have an editor or somebody else around to read my stuff, I got to do it myself. And that's a hard job. You have to pretty much was is is easier for me because I'm whole brained. So I it's like being a Gemini in one person. I can shut all this shit off and read something pretending like I'm someone who hates me. I've ex- I've mentioned this before. And I go through every line, every paragraph, every sentence waiting for me to fuck up. Waiting for me to write something that doesn't make sense. Just imagine me on Twitter when somebody makes a statement and I'm just like, ah, I'm like Karnak from the Inhumans. I see that flaw and I attack it, but I do it to my own writing. And it's a necessary thing. And it's a skill that's good to have. But at the same time, when you send something to an editor, you never know what they're going to say. Even if you think you killed it. And I gotta say, at almost age 44, I don't always feel like that. I'm like, I'm still waiting to hear back what the editor says. And when they're like, oh, this is great. We're gonna run this then. I'm like, wow, really? And I'm always like, wow, really? I'm never like, yeah, I killed that shit. Mm-mm. No, I'd rather be like that than the other way. All right, so here's the thing. I'm going to stop the podcast here because I have a sponsor and I like to get money. And they like to do mid-roll. I like to be completely transparent when it comes to that. I haven't been doing any mid-roll or any ads in a long time because I met all my CPM requirements and I was actually making a shitload of money relatively through the ads and the CPMs that they were giving me. So I went a month without actually getting any sponsorships. I got a sponsor now 
And since I got two episodes left before this show goes into hiatus until November 1st, I like to make some um, lunch money. Okay? So, pause for the cause. Back on the other side. What up? I'm back. This is, again, Dart Against Humanity, episode 59. So, I just finished talking about the magic of writing. And now, I'd like to talk about something relatively similar. So, I've always married film and music and visuals and sound for some odd reason I never thought that these things should be separate I thought they actually played in concert with each other in tandem always I've always associated sound with visuals when I got older it made even more sense my sister asked me um, a couple weeks ago you like musicals? and I remember I stopped and I looked at her and I I I gave her a look and I'm like you mean like Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals? And she's like, uh, yeah, I guess. And I'm like, no. Now, do I like film or shows with music in them that are music-based, that are music-centric? Absolutely. But do I like the traditional musical? No, not really. No. Now, I thought about this. As a kid, again, I'm old, so we didn't have a whole lot of channels. We didn't have a whole lot of choice. If you were the youngest, which I was for the first three years of my life, or one of the little kids in the family, which I was after my younger brother was born, we were subject to whatever the bigger kids were watching until we got old enough and we had our own TV. And I didn't want to be the big brother that my big brother was where I'm like, you got to watch what I want to watch. Because again, middle child, whole brained Leo, what have you actually no, Leo's is supposed to be way more narcissistic. I don't know. Something went wrong there. I, I was older brother. I wanted to break the chains anyway. So I, always associated one thing with the other thing. So when I was a kid, we watched TV and if Bye Bye Birdie was on, we're watching Bye Bye Birdie. What what other choice do you have? If Flower Drum Song's on, we're watching Flower Drum Song. You just star. You ain't got no choice. Billy Some of you don't know what Billy is. Google it. Billy, uh, basically, it's about a girl. She's a tomboy. She races track, but she feels the beat. 
I'm snapping my fingers. The beat. And so, like, there's a whole bunch of dance sequences in there. Um, there's any type of movie, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, um, all the Beach Blanket movies, Beach Blanket Bingo, How to Stuff a Wild Bikini, all that shit. They all came on in the summer. So, even though I don't like musicals, I've seen a gang of musicals because I didn't have a choice in the matter. I was exposed to a lot of things that I typically wouldn't be because you didn't have the options that people have now. It's insane to think I've seen um, a lot of movies, classic movies, like Lifeboat with Tallulah Bankhead, that if you were growing up, growing up now, you never would have been exposed to. Because again, if a movie came on at a certain time of night, the other channels don't come in clear, this channel comes in clear, you don't have a VCR, what else are you going to do? You know how many Bogey and Bacall pictures I've seen as a child? The Bachelor and the Bobby Soxer. Why should I have seen that movie? Oh, because I was born in 1975. The Maltese Falcon. A lot of people talk about it. I've seen it. The Killing, 1956. Why would I have seen that movie on my own? Oh, because it came on television. And I didn't have a goddamn option. But the thing is that even being broke and living in a time before cable, I became way more cultured and understood way more about what I'm supposed to do in terms of writing about music, explaining music. My references are way more. way more well-rounded than you'd think by looking at me because of the time I grew up in and the things I was exposed to. I'll reference something and people are like, how do you know about that? And I don't know if they mean because I'm black or because they think I'm younger than I am. Because to me, this was shit that we all were exposed to. The fantastic Mr. Limpet. The average person now has no idea what the fuck that is. No idea. I do because it used to come on when I was a kid on television. Part animation, part live action, stars Don Knotts. Hello down there. Who the hell knows what that movie is? I do, because when I was a kid, growing up with my brothers and my sister, it was a show, movie that used to come on regular television. Hello down there. I shouldn't know that, but I do. And also helps that I remember everything that ever happened, ever. But I can reference these things. I can pull these things up. Now, the reason why I'm mentioning that 
is because when I got older and I got into hip hop and we got into rap production, my younger brother and I were able to pull up these obscure ideas and sample sources and things from television and we knew what records to get because we knew a song that we heard when we were kids. Perfect example, Hugo the Hippo. I know that there's a song called uh, Wherever You Go, Hugo. We go to, and I know there was a horn part in there. And I was like, yo, you could sample that and flip that and do some nice shit with that. Pick up the Hugo the Hippo album. What? Hugo the Hippo. You don't know about Hugo the Hippo? Saw a movie called Animal Olympics. Me and Ninth Wonder used to talk about Animal Olympics on Twitter back and forth. I was like, yo, people, these cats don't know about Animal Olympics. What the hell is Animal Olympics? Animal Olympics is a cartoon that starred a lot of famous people doing the voices that was about a world where animals were anthropomorphized. That means light people. And I think it came out in 1980. And it had incredible, crazy music. Crazy music. It was funny too. But you remember that shit because a lot of people wanted to sample that later on who remembered it. Basically, it was just like music nerds, the people that were really into animation. But you can make some ill joints with it. All these things factored back in. Remembering songs from Billy. The break from Billy, the beat. If you go on YouTube, you can actually find that scene. Okay? I've actually used that and, and like used that as practice for people, for beat makers and stuff like that. For people who ask me for sources to practice. All of these things from my childhood and my upbringing have stuck with me and helped me going forward. Even though it seemed like it was something that was completely unnecessary and it was something that I could do nothing with. Everything matters. So, A lot of you also know I don't really sleep. So I do this podcast. I do it earlier than I used to do because I realized something. While doing this podcast, I started seeing the numbers in the UK and Europe. And I realized that while I was doing my podcast and uploading it early for us folks on the East Coast. So it was up by the time they did their commutes. I was like, wait a minute. So looking at the people who listen to this podcast in Europe and when they get it, if I do the podcast six hours sooner, they can listen to it when they do their commutes. Let me just do this quick little experiment. And of course, it's something I noticed because I don't sleep. I said, let me do this quick little experiment. Let me do my podcast sooner. And let me check my numbers. Yeah, this is me 18 months 
deep into a podcast finally thinking on on my second one. Great. So I try that. I see the numbers come back. Hey, that that that's a jump. Damn, that's a jump. And then I also noticed something else. I use Anchor. Anchor gives you information about 13 podcasts. I mean, podcast distributors, 13. Um, it don't tell you about the other podcast distributors you have or their numbers. You got to figure that shit out on your own or, 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 or imagine it. What you do notice is that there's a, um, how do, how do I explain this? Okay, I'll break this down. And th- this is something about podcasting that I don't think, do other podcasters ever talk about this? I think it's important to kind of discuss. I like being um, transparent because to me, this is all shit I had to learn on the fly. So since I can't find solid numbers outside of the 13 distributors that are actually supported by Anchor, I have to figure things out. I'm trying to click dashboard and nothing's happening. Okay, so now it's moving. Yeah, I get it. You're not helping. I'm talking and I'm talking live on a podcast. Help me out. Okay, thank you. So that gives you your listeners all time and your geographic location. This is how I figured out like my listeners in the UK, Netherlands, France, Canada, which isn't overseas. It's right there. Germany, Denmark, what have you. So you go to listening platforms. Under it, it says apps and devices. And I look and I see the percentage of listeners that come from Apple Podcasts. Then I see the percentage from Spotify. When I got Spotify, that number grew more and more and more and more and more. So now Spotify, that number is big. Right next to it, I see Overcast. I see that number, that percentage of listeners. See Stitcher, that percentage of listeners. Then there's this thing called Other. I've noticed that over time, that Other, that black bar that says other has gotten to be a bigger and bigger and bigger percent as time's gone on. And I also look at my geographic location and seeing my numbers from certain geographic locations have grown. So when I see that other bar grow, I realize that I see percentages drop on Apple Podcasts and I see the other grow bigger or I see a bit of I see Spotify stay the same. Overcast and Stitcher stay the same, but the Apple podcast goes down a little and the other gets bigger. And I basically have to figure out what percentage that is taken by whatever the new um, distributor I just got is. The biggest jump I got recently was after I added iHeartRadio. So once I added iHeartRadio, I saw three, four, five percent change in the other over time and i realized oh that's the percentage that's going to that but then i get added to another one i found out that pod paradise so i see a change again so i have to figure out i applied to deezer i'm still waiting for that to go live the link but i've been told that 
it'll probably go live within the next week. It's been a week, so it might be another week before it fully goes live. So likely by episode 60 going up or after the season three is over, the Deezer link will finally be live. So I'll post that everywhere. But I'll finally start figuring out where I'm, stuff is being listened to. And that would be my officially, I believe, my 30th podcast distributor. But here's the thing. Amazon Alexa counts as a podcast distributor, but I can't see Amazon Alexa numbers and I can't link to Amazon Alexa because, again, if you have Amazon, you have to say, Alexa, play this. Now, also, you have other distributors like Downcast. Where you have to apply to Downcast, you have to be paying for Downcast before you can search Downcast. So I can't search Downcast to find Dart Against Humanity and maybe post up the link to Downcast. I might be available on Downcast. I might be available on a couple other services like that, which I can't physically check. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask, if you listen to Dart Against Humanity... On a specific distributor that I don't already acknowledge, because again, being on Anchor, it only tells me about 13 different distributors. Okay? Just 13. And I know I'm on 30. So I'll help you all out. The podcast distributors that Dart Against Humanity is presently on are Anchor, which is the distributor, main distributor, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Player FM, Overcast, Castbox, Pocket Cast, Breaker, Radio Public, TuneIn, Podbean, Acast, Podbay, Listen Notes, Blurberry, Himalaya, Podknife, Podchaser, Podfanatic, Pod Paradise, Castro, UBook, MyTuner, Plex, Amazon Alexa, and still waiting for it to go live on Deezer. Now, if you listen to Dart Against Humanity on a distributor other than any of the 30 I just listed, do me a favor and tweet me what the distributor is and hopefully send a link with it to me on Twitter at Dart underscore Adams. If you can't tweet me because you're not on Twitter, then email me what the distributor is and hopefully a link or tell me what the distributor is that you can't link to like a downcast or anything like that. Or if you can possibly send a link with it, send it and send that to the e gmail account dart adams is a bastard d capital a capital i capital a capital b capital dart adams is a bastard at gmail.com i'm doing this because by the time season three is over on august 16th 
I want to be able to fully acknowledge all the outlets to distribute my podcast so I can fully track who listens to it and where. I have another podcast, uh, the Boston Legends podcast, which is also just recently launched on Anchor. It's on seven different distributors now. I'm going to have to work with the guys and figure out how to get it up to the 13 it's supposed to be on and then do what I did here and figure out where else it is that I can't track via Anchor. When you start a podcast, nobody tells you how to do this. How are you supposed to search for your podcast being on outlets and distributors you never knew existed? Explain that to me. Do you think I knew any of these places, any of these outlets existed before? How long do you think I knew what pod, what, what Downcast was? How long do you think I knew? Hmm? Take a wild guess. How long ago do you think I found out you book existed? Or there was a pod paradise or Plex? Or how about all the other global podcast distributors? How I had to figure out that I couldn't submit to some of them unless I was doing 10,000 listens per episode. How did I figure that out? I had to do a lot of work, a lot of independent research. No one told me shit. I've grown a podcast out of nothing. With stick to good old American gumption, and dumb fucking luck over what, like 18 months? From one to zero different podcast distributors when I didn't even know that there were 30. And now that I know that there might be 50 out there, I'd like to get to 40. So any help you can give me would be greatly appreciated. I know typically when I do a podcast, I do not talk about these type of things. But I think that that's the best reason for me to do it. I want to be completely transparent with the listener. I want them to understand that a lot of people go into these things with a business plan and an idea. And I have to tell you, as somebody who's been writing for a long time, I have to pivot all the time. I have to figure shit out on the fly all the time, especially in an exponential world of data. Where you don't know what's happening and things shift and all of a sudden you got to pivot and, and go another direction. So I had to figure out what I was doing in something I was supposedly succeeding in without realizing I was succeeding or how all because I had to figure shit out on the fly as I did it. And if what I can do, what I'm doing helps somebody else out and makes things easier for them all for it. It's what I'm here for. 
And I'm going to end here because a friend of mine just hit me and said that they were going to be at anchovies and they're only in town for the night. Uh, I also want to say um, rest in peace to my friend Peyton Locke, who passed away of cancer. Um, rest in eternal peace to DJ Chaos and rest in eternal peace to Toni Morrison. Uh, you inspired countless writers especially young black ones. You made us be seen. You made us visible. And you made us realize that there are so many things we could do with words, so many ways we could affect other people with words, and so many ways we can be touched with words. And I am eternally grateful to you. And thank you. I have nothing else to say, Warren.